G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. God is wanting Jonah to admit something about himself. That if Jonah is angry because God is forgiving the Ninevites, then why isn't Jonah angry when God is forgiving him or the Israelites? God is asking Jonah, why should I not forgive someone who repents? Do you think you're better than they are? They're worse than you? Jonah, are some sins too great to be forgiven? Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill. And in this episode, we start a new series, For God So Loved. Now, there's a little play on words there. It's for, F-O-U-R. Because this series is looking at all six books in the Bible that have only four chapters. Ruth, Philippians, Malachi, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and today Pastor Jeff is starting in Jonah. Within the four chapters of these books, there's great words of encouragement and challenges for us. So let's join Pastor Jeff now as he begins this series, For God So Loved. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Jonah chapter four. We're in a new series called For God So Loved. And there's a play on the word for instead of F-O-R, it's F-O-U-R. And here's why. We've discovered that there are six books in the Bible, including Old and New Testament, that have only four chapters. They are Ruth, Jonah, Malachi, Philippians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy. And these four chapters, the four chapters in each of these books give us an incredible word of encouragement and challenge. And so you've heard us say this numerous times, and that is, well, not only us, but the phrase goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And that is that you can hear the message of scripture so often that it loses its punch, its, its power, and you just kind of skim right over the top of it. And it's almost like these authors in these six books that have four chapters, they get to the fourth chapter and they say, by the way, now that we've said all this, we need to remind you of this powerful truth that is life-changing. And if you're not careful, you can read these truths and they just go right over your head or you just skip right by them. But if these things are true, and according to the Bible, they are, it changes absolutely everything in your life. So we're gonna be told that we are known beyond belief, that every intricate detail of your life and purpose is known, that you're loved beyond measure, that you are loved and accepted in ways unimaginable. You're adored beyond understanding. You could not be any more valued, any more significant than you are now. And you are secure when it comes to eternity beyond any comprehension. Nothing can separate you. Nothing can separate you from God. So we're in the series titled, For God So Loved the World, or For God So Loved, but obviously the world's part of it. The question is, in these four chapters, in these six different books, these truths that we learn, how, how do they fundamentally change us? 
Because if these four chapters really sink in, these fourth chapters, then absolutely everything would change. So let's go to the first narrative. Get excited about a truth maybe that you've heard, but maybe the Holy Spirit of God will open your eyes in a way that you've never seen this before. We go to the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. It's a story that most of us remember. And the context is, and these are the cliff notes, God wants Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites. Jonah hates the Ninevites. He actually wants them to perish. And if you've ever prayed for something or for someone else, hoping that God did not actually answer that prayer, this is what Jonah's doing. I know if there's times in your life when you say, you know, I've prayed all of these prayers. I'll finally pray this prayer for somebody that I really don't care that much about. I mean, I've prayed for a job promotion. I've prayed to get the guy or to get the girl back. I've prayed for my children. Why doesn't God answer these? And then I pray for this person or this group of people that I really didn't even mean it. I was just trying to be spiritual or something. And God answered that prayer. My real prayer about them would be, God, go get them. Give them what they deserve. So Jonah wants God to give the Ninevites what he thinks they deserve. And that's because his understanding of God is warped. He still thinks, as we've mentioned in the past, that he's good people and the Ninevites are bad people. And because he's one of the good ones, he deserves blessings from God. And because the Ninevites are the bad ones, they deserve punishment. So instead of going to Nineveh to preach, if you know the story, Jonah 1, 2, and 3, he jumps on a boat, goes in the opposite direction. He runs from God. God pursues him and catches him. He throws him into the belly of a big fish. Jonah repents. And when he repents, he's regurgitated onto the seaside. And then he goes and preaches to the Ninevites. The Ninevites repent. And then what is Jonah's response? He sulks as he sits under a shade tree. Now, here's how the story goes. I'm in Jonah 4, 1 through 11. But to Jonah... This seemed very wrong and he became angry. What seemed wrong? That the Ninevites preached, that they actually paid attention to his message that God had delivered to him and they repented. So he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. At least he's honest. I know or I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head, so he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Is it, he said. And Jonah said, it is. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their left hand from their right, and also many animals? 
So I want us to think about something here because in the past we've used this passage or dealt with this passage showing how God does have a heart for those who are far from God. And although we don't give people the grace that we've been given, God has given us an immense amount of grace that it's, it's everlasting, it's infinite. But there's another big lesson in the passage that seldom do we get to deal with. And in order to get us thinking along those terms, I want us to think about something. Now, so, so lean in here and go with me on this little journey. When tragedy strikes in a person's life, and uh, so that we can get the full measure of this, let's say a child dies. Because usually when skeptics talk about good God, pain, suffering, and evil, they always throw in this idea of an innocent victim or an innocent child suffering. There are four victims when a child, an innocent child suffers and dies. The first victim is the one who's been lost, the child. But according to scripture, is this an act from which God cannot recover? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us an analogy from agriculture. He says that when you start to doubt God's power over life and death, if you start to doubt the resurrection, he says, consider this cultural analogy, this agricultural analogy. You have a little apple seed, and when the seed goes down in the ground, it dies and decomposes, and it springs forth into a beautiful apple tree. You take an acorn, goes into the ground, dies, decomposes, death occurs, but then it springs forth life, and it evolves into this beautiful oak tree. So he says, this is how the resurrection will be, that the latter life, the latter body is far more glorious than the former. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, so it will be in the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Sown dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural, raised a spiritual one. So Paul teaches us that the latter life is far more glorious than the first, right? Paul in Philippians said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now the only way death can be gain is that it's far above and beyond the life that we live now. But if this life or if the next life is equal to or lesser than the life lived here, then how can it be gain? The apostle Paul knew that while we enjoy so many aspects of this life, that the one that is yet to come is the one that we're truly after. So that the point becomes the life that is lost is not lost when it's in the hands of the one who made it and sustains it, which is why David wrote these words. Hard for us to understand? David was emphatic in Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. So how could the death of the saints be precious in the sight of the Lord? Because it's at that point, God gives you that for which you've always been searching. A life that is far greater, a body, a spirit, an existence that is far greater than the one you had in the terrestrial, the celestial life far exceeds. So logically speaking, the God who made life the first time can remake it, make it again, and the latter life is far more glorious than the first, so that the one who dies in Christ actually gains. The second person involved when we lose someone or when we experience tragedy is the one who's left behind. Let's say the child dies, but what about we who are left behind to suffer the loss? The quote goes that the view from the hearse is a painful one. A couple of weeks ago, I came down the stairs from my office between the nine o'clock and the 11 o'clock service on the San Dimas campus, and there was an older gentleman waiting for me, and with tears in his eyes, he said, Pastor Jeff, could you please come and visit my wife? She's dying, she's in hospice, she's near death. Here's an older gentleman that you could tell adored, loved and adored his wife. This is painful. 
He knows he's going to lose her. The pain is so deep. It's, it's indescribable. And if you've never lost someone like a wife or a mother or a father that you've loved for so long, it's just very difficult to deal with. When my father died, my brother had made a montage of photos of my father with his grandchildren, my children, Sion and Delaney. And I thought I would handle the death of my father much better because I'd already experienced the death of my mother. So I thought, okay, I'll get through this. And as soon as I saw those photos with my dad and my children, the pain was so deep. As I've said before, it's hard to believe at that point that you can feel this much pain and still be alive. However, this is where God comes as comforter and healer. God is always revealer and redeemer. He is creator and designer. But in those moments when we lose something, that we think we cannot go on living. The Bible is explicit in its definition and understanding that at that moment, the God of the universe does not leave us alone, but comes to us as comforter and healer, which is why David said in one of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 23, four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. My father died, my pain is deep, but the revelation of God is deeper still and sustains me. One of the first converts that we had in our ministry in Africa, in Zimbabwe, was a lady by the name of Gloria. She became a Christ follower. She was a true skeptic. Six months later, diagnosed with cancer. She was in the later stages of her life. I went to see her. I tried to comfort her. But she said to me, Pastor Jeff, I love you and I thank you with all of my heart for introducing Jesus to me. But you will never see God like I see God now until you walk this path. This has been the experience of my ministry that people near the end of tragedy or even in the midst of it are given a special revelation of God that they start to see heaven and earth and God and their lives in a unique way. It's a Jesus revelation that tends to sustain them through the most difficult periods of their life. There's this prevailing presence that comes in when we experience the difficulty. So if you think about it, you've got the loss of the one who's died and yet it's gained because the latter life is far more glorious than the former. You've got, although we have lived, left behind to suffer the pain of loss, that God comes to us and gives us a revelation of himself, of himself. More lives have been changed in death than in life. Ears had heard. Remember what Job said? When he lost everything, he said, before I had heard about you, Job 42, five, with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. You're given a revelation in the most difficult times of your life. Your ears had heard, but in pain and suffering and tragedy, your eyes are open to the redemption that is to come. But then there's a third victim, or we might call player in this scenario of the death of a child. The skeptic who condemns the act as an act of evil. Now, I don't want to dwell too much here because I've done it in the past and philosophy doesn't really help us that much when we're suffering the loss of someone we love. This is real. This is existential. It's a reality. But the skeptic will often look from the outside in and say, you see the death of that child or you see the death of the innocent. That proves there's no God because there's no way God could exist when there's so much evil in our world. And I've shown you before that this is what we call a self-defeating argument. Because once you assume that there's categoric evil in the world, you're also assuming good, and you're also assuming a moral law that governs the categories of good and evil. Unless good and evil are objective, then your argument against God self-destructs. 
But you can only have an objective category of good and evil. You can only call something good and call something evil if you've got a moral law that is absolute to define those categories. And the only way you can get this absolute law, moral law, to define what evil and good really are is by God himself because he is the ultimate moral law giver. To put it in other words, when we talk about the life of a child, the reason that we're hurting, the reason that we're frustrated, the reason that we're even angry is because we believe that all life is sacred. But life can only be sacred if it's given to us by God. Time plus matter plus chance? Nature is red in tooth and claw? If we are here, if we are here purely as a result of time plus matter plus chance, if atheistic evolution is an accurate description of the universe, then you and I would not be sad when death occurs. It's the natural part of the universe. We're sad because we know that life has intrinsic value. We know that innocent children should not suffer. But you have to resolve. You may never be able to solve the dilemma, but you've got to resolve it in the context of God. Because without God, there's no absolute moral law to give you definitive categories of good and evil. We know that we've been created in the image of God. We know that life has intrinsic human value, which is why when we witness the, the suffering or death of the innocent, that we are compelled and moved toward anger. So how then, if we can't solve the problem of evil, how can we resolve it? And the answer is, you admit your limitations. This is key to the Jonah 4. It's the key to your life that you realize you're not God. Therefore, your understanding is limited. You don't see all that God sees, even in the death of a child. I'm not saying it's very difficult to take. God does reveal himself. He gives you a prevailing presence. Nevertheless, there's no way that you can figure all this out because you're not God. You can't connect all the dots. You don't see what is happening. You don't have the mind or the power of God. And as we said in the beginning, this is not an act from which God cannot recover because when there is a life that has been lost, God restores that life. The giver of life the first time gives the, the life the second time and the second life, the life that is to come is far more glorious than the first. But then of course you have the fourth victim, the believer who has to understand everything now or he or she's gonna walk away. I've gotta understand why all of this happens now and that's impossible. You're not God. It's gotta be resolved, evil, pain, suffering. The things that happen to you in your life cannot be solved completely. They can only be resolved in the context of God. Otherwise, the question itself is self-defeating. Malcolm Muggeridge, one of the greatest thinkers of our time, wrote to Mother Teresa and said, Mother Teresa, I can never become a Christian because of all the duplicity that I see in Christianity, what he's saying, I cannot harmonize a good God with all the pain and suffering in the world. You Christians say that God is kind, merciful, that he's good, yet I see the suffering of the innocent. Mother Teresa's response is classic. She said, quote, your problem is a finite one. God is infinite. Let the infinite take care of your finite struggle. And at that word, Malcolm Muggeridge bent his knee and became a Christ follower. Just because there are things you don't know, it does not change the things you do know. God is infinite, we are not. Now, what does all of that have to do with Jonah 4? Everything, because Jonah's life, when we get to chapter four, is not going the way he expects. In his mind, God is not acting 
the way he's supposed to act, God is not running the universe the way God should run the universe. In fact, in his mind, God is acting opposite to Jonah's understanding, so much so his world, Jonah's world, has been rocked and he wants to die. Look at verse three. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Please stay with me. Crucial. There are many people, when they discover that the God they've been worshiping all their lives, the one they've created in their own image, or the one some leader has created for them in their own image, when they understand, when they come to understanding later in life that this is not the real God, there's only one of two options. Change your view and worldview and understanding of God or commit spiritual suicide. I actually have a younger brother who did exactly that. He got caught up in his mid-20s in a church that told him that if you become a Christian, you will never be sick again. You will never have any troubles and you're going to be rich and you'll begin to see demons. So those four things... And as I said before, my brother thought that there were demons in everything. He would go out in the morning, lay his hands on his car and cast out the demons so that it would start. And of course, you've heard me say, look, brother, it has nothing to do with demons. This is a Ford. That's what Fords do. They just don't work. (laughs) And so here's my brother who has this view of God. I'll never get sick, but he does get sick. I'm going to get rich, but I'm not rich. And I'm seeing demonic forces. He always quotes the passage out of Luke, no weapon formed against me shall prevail. And he says that my pastor has told me that I'll never have trouble in this life if I do everything right. Well, as he lives his life, trouble keeps coming. So what do you do? You either change your worldview or you check out of spiritual things completely. And for a lot of people, that's what they decide to do. Jonah's view of God has been shaken to its core. He wants to die. He wants to commit spiritual suicide. He says, God, you're giving grace to the Ninevites. You gotta be kidding me. Just kill me, kill me now. And what you notice is God is being so patient with Jonah, even though Jonah's not being patient with anyone else. So God stops and he asks Jonah a simple question in hopes that Jonah will open up within his own assumptions and change his view of God. And in Jonah 4.4, God says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? God is wanting Jonah to admit something about himself. That if Jonah is angry because God is forgiving the Ninevites, then why isn't Jonah angry when God is forgiving him or the Israelites? God is asking Jonah, why should I not forgive someone who repents? Do you think you're better than they are? They're worse than you? Jonah, are some sins too great to be forgiven? Have you earned, Jonah, anything that you received? Hasn't it been given to you as a gift of grace? Should I give Nineveh what they deserve? Should I give Israel what they deserve? Should I give you what you deserve? There's something about the Christian life. Somewhere along the way, we start to get this sense of entitlement that because we've done certain things in the right way, that not only should God bless us, but there should never be any trouble in our lives. There's a part of us that wants to say, God, come on, man, are you on vacation? Don't you see what's happening down here to me? I know that Jesus said in this world, you'll have trouble, but can't you limit some of the trouble just a little bit? And I've often wondered if while all of us want to write a book 
entitled Questions I'd Like to Ask God, if God is up in heaven saying, oh yeah, well, I've got my own book, Questions I'd Like to Ask You, or if God's from the South, Questions I'd Like to Ask All You All, what, if anything, are you really entitled to? And why? Is your life about you or is it about me? Do you really think that you know better than me how your life should be going? Don't you really believe that I can bring immeasurably more, considerably more, out of all these situations, more than you would ever ask or imagine, out of the most hellish situation? Why do you give me what you desire rather than what I desire? You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. If you think about it, Jonah's quite a piece of work. I mean, the big fish swallows him. He cries to God, God saves him. And he says, you are my salvation, God. And I know you sent this storm to save me. Then another storm comes and he says, God, kill me, kill me dead. Jonah is angry with God. Up and down, are we any different? You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me want to dance and sing With every single breath I breathe I will bring this offering You are my wonder You make the wonder Today 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 with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.